Hello everyone and especially any new listeners to this podcast where we talk all about the science of wildlife gardening. I'm talking to you today from our allotment where we've been actually making some progress following our covid hiatus over this year and today we have just completed our first footpath. We've done some burrowing of some nice wood chip which we created earlier in the year when we cut back all of the very very big hedges Um, So we've been doing lots of nice material recycling. looks pretty good, if I do say so myself. And you can actually follow us on our allotment and follow our progress over on YouTube because we've been making videos on what we're up to. So maybe see you over there. I think it's time now, though, to go home, put the kettle on and record a proper podcast episode. Welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ben. And me, Ellie. We are back at HQ, which is our spare room with a folding table. Very glamorous. Yeah. (laughs) Better to have a table now, though. We didn't have that before. We used to have to do it downstairs in our kitchen and turn off the fridge every time because it was too loud. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, back to the allotment. Um, Ellie's already said we've been up there planting some green manures and doing all sorts of things. If you want to know more about the gardening allotment side of things, then please go ahead and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We have way more listeners to this podcast than subscribers over there. So there is a link in the show notes and you can also just search us on YouTube where we are the Wild GDN. So we'd really like to get to a thousand subscribers by Christmas. So yeah, please go ahead and subscribe to us over there. I think we only need about 300 more subscribers to get there. Yes. So, yeah, every click counts, guys. Yeah, so what have we got coming up today, Ellie? Well, for the first time ever, we've got a fern as our native plant of the month. Ooh. And that is the heart tongue fern. We have also got Ashley as our gardening correspondent. And we have some big thank yous to make to all the wonderful recent donations to the podcast. Yes, yes. And the main event for today is a discussion on whether we should be rewilding our gardens. But before we get into that juicy topic... Let's talk about what we've seen this last couple of weeks. Well, we didn't cover this last time because we were doing news instead of sightings, but we went on holiday up to sort of Whitby area, and on the way up there, we visited Harlow Car, the RHS garden, and it was amazing it was absolutely so beautiful. beautiful i think they keep it a bit of a secret to be honest with you you don't really hear much about harlow car no it's the it's the smaller cousin isn't it of the others yeah yeah it's not in the grand scale of wisley or somewhere like that but the great thing about that is that we did it all in an afternoon yeah and we actually saw it all yeah it yeah we be- didn't just march around really is beautiful and looked fantastic about three weeks ago yeah so lots of the trees were in color then and they are still in color now things like the persian ironwood that is such a stunning tree. It goes bright red at this time of year. Yeah, it's a classic autumn colour tree to plant. Very big tree though as well. So if you've got a big space, then go ahead and plant it. Yeah. It is stunning. It looks like it's on fire. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. And another one that was looking really good is um, a tree. There's a genus called Zelkova. And the one we saw was Zelkova serrata. And we actually saw a champion Zelkova tree in a 
in Bath, didn't we? Yeah. In one of the public parks there. Yeah. And they're really lovely. Beautiful. It lit up the bit of the, the woodland walk that we were in. It was amazing. Yeah. And while I was standing there admiring it, taking photos, right next to us, we saw the first fire crest we've ever seen. Came oh. hopping in. We thought it was a gold crest, didn't we? Until I think we clocked I, eyes on it. Well, it's, it's always more likely to be a gold crest. They look really similar. And I saw this little bird flitting around. I thought, oh, gold crest. But then I noticed its crest on the top of its head was bright orange. And I don't think we've actually ever been that excited. No. We do get excited <laughs> about everything. It's true. But this was off the scale. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, really happy to have seen that. Yeah, it's one of those things where we're standing staring at a tree with big smiles on our faces and then of course it's gone by the time anybody else comes past so they just think we're complete nutters but they are <laughs> well we are they wouldn't be wrong and this was also in a garden this is about a month out of date now but we saw our first ever spotted fly catcher in our mum's garden oh yeah i forgot about this one in our mum's in my mum's your mum yes <laughs> that would be <been> revelation <laughs> yeah it was uh, again, something I, I didn't recognise the bird. I knew it looked a bit warblery, I thought, but then looked it up in the book because Ben's mum has lots of bird books on hand. And yeah, it was a female spotted flycatcher. And I presume it was on its way migrating. Yeah, it was heading south, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Back a bit, to Africa. Oh, it's just very exciting. Uh, again, I think your mum was a bit bemused as to why we were screaming so much. But then... <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, she was into it. She, She's yeah, getting really she, good with she birds. She is, she yeah. is. Some other plants looking good at the moment. The dogwoods have all dropped their leaves and we're starting to see the colour on the stem. So that's really nice. And also we mentioned in the last podcast that Eliagnus was in flower and they were smelling incredible and they're still going. Yeah. It's been a full month. They have really tiny flowers but and they're a bit inconspicuous to you know in terms of looking at them. But the scent just carries. There's actually some in our local big park and I was having a walk with a friend the other day and I smelt it well before we were anywhere near them. But I knew what it was I was smelling and it was just stunning. I think I said before, like a spicy floral scent. It's really, really good. Mm. Get your nose stuck in there, guys. Yeah. <laughs> what else have you seen? Um, well... Because it's been so mild, which, by the way, we are terrified of. But anyway, moving on from that, it's um, there's a lot of wasps that are still out uh, feeding on meat or taking meat rather back to their larvae. And you wouldn't normally see this at this time of year, but I've seen it twice. We actually saw a wasp stealing a fly from a spider's web, which was that quite was funny. That was so cool. Cheeky it actually it landed on the fly and proceeded to cut the fly out of the web, didn't it? it yeah. Cut all the way around the web unpeeled all the web off it and then flew off with it i mean it's an easy meal isn't it yeah Very but clever it was, wasp. it's a lot of effort yeah was, yeah i thought that was fascinating well then a little bit later on i saw in a garden just a fly that had been already caught by the wasp and the wasp was proceeding to try and fly off with it but it really did struggle this fly was quite chunky i couldn't yeah. see what type it was but this wasp really was like buzzing through the air trying to carry this heavy weight it's quite funny to see but i got in touch with wasp woman on twitter professor syrian sumner who is a really excellent wasp expert just to double check that this is normal and she basically said that they'll keep feeding broods up until the first frost so the fact that it's been so mild means that those broods are still going and they're still feeding them with lots of meat from your garden that's right (laughs) because they feed the grubs meat Mm. the actual adults don't eat the meat no what they what they actually eat is sort of a sugary excretion that the grubs give off um, when the, the grubs are feeding. But once all the grubs are gone from the nest, they switch to sugar, which is why you normally see 
wasps going after fruit and cider. beer, cider, <laughs> jam, whatever at this time of year. But yeah, because the broods are still, the nests are still active, um, they've still got these grubs in and they're still taking meat. And another spidery thing, I have to mention this because it was really fantastic, but on Twitter, at Wildlife Lucy posted a picture, and this was unbelievable at first to really see it, of a newt caught in a spider's web. Yeah. Now, I think there's a bit of discussion underneath as to whether or not it was an accidental catch or whether the spider had intentionally or... It can't have been. I, not well, in this country. Isn't it, We don't have tarantulas. No, 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 no. But I think maybe what happened is the newt did accidentally get caught yeah. in a web and then the spider took advantage of it. But she'd said that there had obviously been interaction between the spider and the newt and the newt did perish and would have been one hell of a meal or many, many meals for that spider. Um, yeah, it's really, really fascinating to see but very gruesome good timing for halloween i think oh yeah oh We have a very long list of thank yous to give out today. This is to everyone that has donated essentially for the whole of this year. So we're really sorry that if you've donated and we've not thanked you yet, it is so gratefully received. And we're going to do our usual roll call of all those wonderful donators to the podcast. It does cost us a couple of hundred quid a year to just in software, just to run this podcast, which currently comes out of our pocket. So all of these donations goes towards that and keeps us going, basically. So, yeah, I think it's time, Ben, to roll that music. Thank you to... Thomas Hankinson, Rose Sanger, Bianca Brandon, Diana Thornton, Hugh Miller, Hello hi you. <laughs> Kim Britt Harvey, Sarah Woodman, Lauren Dustin, Richard Evans, Teresa Potmeyer, and one anonymous donor, initials PC, you know who you are. Thank you everybody, every penny that you donate goes towards funding the podcast and we're going to do another thank you in the episode before Christmas, so if you would like to donate there is a link to our PayPal in the show notes. rewilding then this is the second time we've done a topic like this which includes an element of our own interpretation like the native versus non-native plant debate back in episode 12 it's a good one it is a good one juicy like this one will be so we should start by saying that we're discussing our opinions here and we hope to show you why we think this way but not necessarily for all of you to agree with us in fact we actually love a bit of discussion because that's exactly how we form our own ideas so please stick with us and if you do disagree then let us know on facebook or twitter or email first then the context well the idea of rewilding has a long history in ecology in fact actually wild gardens go back to william robinson and people like that don't they in the, the 1800s yeah yep. um but arguably uh, rewilding came into public consciousness at least in the uk with the publication of george monbiot's excellent book called feral in 2013 shortly followed by isabella tree's book wilding on the topic of george monbiot oh here we go here we go George Monbiot has a new book out called Regenesis, all about regenerative farming and various other things. And if any of you have a copy, because it's the sort of book that listeners to this podcast 
read. If you would turn to page four and look in the acknowledgements, you might see a Ben Middleton in there. <laughs> and who would that be, Ben? That would be me, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ben did some research and I think George Monbiot actually asked for information about organic uh, products, wasn't it? That's what you'd done the research on. He was, it was originally about whether human manure can be used in uh, garden composts and things like that. Yeah. Uh, because it can be used on farmland in strict circumstances but But, you got in touch with him with all of your research on it and it actually ended up in the book yeah it's amazing yeah we might come on to the research that i did on that in another episode back to rewilding though in the last 10 years it's become sort of a trendy idea so that's why these books have come out and in this year's chelsea flower show no less a rewilding themed garden won not only a gold medal but also the coveted best in show prize which is uh, outstanding really it's a garden that was created by garden designers i don't know how you say this urquhart yeah urquhart and hunt for a charity called rewilding britain and this garden incorporated a soundscape of uk wild spaces and it also had a representation of a beaver influenced landscape so that's what the the idea of the garden was was about now during the telly coverage of chelsea Monty Don and Joe Swift are on there having a chat about it and I think it's worth quoting them both. So Monty started by saying There are two things that bother me about this garden. One, is it a garden? And I think with the beavers, well if you took the beavers out I think it'd be much better. I think it doesn't need the beavers. I think they've built an idea and a polemic around beavers and that stops it being a garden. And two, rewilding is a really unhelpful term when it comes to gardening. To which Joe Swift replied People ask me, how can I rewild my 50-foot garden in Hackney? And the answer is, you can't. You can make it wilder, more naturalistic, more biodiverse, and all those things that gardeners do to manipulate the space they've got. But to recreate nature completely in a garden is impossible, really. I spared you my actual impressions of both those people, by the (laughs) way. That's exactly what I was about to say. (laughs) I I mean, Monty Don's fine, but Joe Swift, (laughs) you could have done a Cockney Geezer accent. That would have been brilliant. I might be meeting these people one day. I don't (laughs) think that's appropriate. Back to our topic. (laughs) These ideas then that, you know, being discussed by Monty and Joe and the subsequent press around Chelsea actually got us thinking, can rewilding really happen in gardens? And we've tried to educate ourselves as much as we can about the topic of rewilding for this episode because we're all for it in general, although we actually do disagree with each other on some points. Yeah, this is the sort of thing we talk about when we're just <laughs> knocking around gardens. Yeah, actually, I've just finished reading Rebirding, which is a book by Benedict McDonald, which came out a few years ago now. I cannot rate this book highly enough. If you are interested in the topic of rewilding, there are lots of books, but I do very much recommend that one as it's fresh in my mind. It left me with a real sense of hope for our natural world, which is excellent. Yeah, actually, you started by saying the first few chapters were really depressing and then it turned around completely. And Well, yeah, he, he, he laid out how it is, basically, and yeah. that was obviously very depressing. Um, but then, he, yeah, it was just amazing. Like what, what Britain could be like really captured my imagination and I thought it was an excellent book. And as I said, there are also loads of other good books out there, which we've actually gathered together into a short reading list in the show notes for this episode. But it's in gardens specifically that we're talking about now. And in that regard, Ben and I agree. So to cut to the chase, we thought we'd start with our conclusion and then show you our workings afterwards. 
we've concluded that the specific term rewilding, if it's going to remain useful sort of in the ecological world, should only be applied to long-term landscape scale projects. And we don't think our gardens are spaces in which it can happen. So if that's our conclusion, let's go into our workings. What are we thinking about this? Well, first, we think that outside ecology, the term rewilding has become a largely empty term or in fact actually it's become so all-encompassing as to be completely meaningless and there's a nice word for this which has been applied to rewilding and this word is pancreston and a pancreston is something where there's an explanation or an answer that is too broad or too vague to be of any real value and what do we mean by this well i did some science (laughs) i say that in the loosest possible sense of the term i went into google and I typed rewilding your. You should do this. You can do this at home. Yeah, it's really interesting. I like doing it for all sorts of things. But um, yeah, we'll stick with rewilding for now. And I got all manner of things back. I had rewilding your gut, your mind, your relationship. What's that like? Putting car keys in a bowl, that sort of I, thing. <laughs> yeah, possibly. <laughs> and I think possibly the most contrived thing that both of us have seen was an article in The Guardian about rewilding retail. Oh, what does that mean? I don't know, yeah. Even Monbiot, George Monbiot, wrote an article on rewilding politics. And it just seems to be everywhere. And in all of these cases, the term rewilding has come to mean something along the lines of greater diversity, a more diverse political system or a more diverse set of shops. And so you might think that as wildlife gardeners, increasing the diversity of plants and animals species is exactly what we want to do. Well, of course you'd be right, it is. But here's where a garden and a larger ecosystem start to diverge. Rewilding is about letting dynamism back into our landscapes. A rewilded landscape must be allowed to change over time due to the reflexive interaction of all the physical processes and species within that ecosystem. We'll part the question of whether humans should be part of that dynamism, but a nice way to put it is that rewilding is process rather than goal-oriented restoration. Actually, you could check out an Into the Wild podcast episode with ecologist Dr Alex Lees for more on that idea. Yeah, that was a really good episode that they did. Basically, what we're saying is that in a rewilded landscape, it's the dynamism of processes that's important. So to give you a couple of ideas of what we're talking about, um, we mean things like allowing meadows and salt marshes to seasonally flood rather than to be drained, rivers to re-wiggle and to braid rather than being straightened and canalised. Uh, and then, of course, we've got the never-ending battle between plants colonising new spaces and then all those things that use, eat, trample the plants each have their own predators as well and all of those are moving freely around the landscape and all of these are in interaction with the transportation of sediments the nutrient cycles the climate the dynamic creation and erosion of soils all of these things that make up natural systems and humanity tends to reduce the level of complexity in natural systems in order to control them right and rewilding is about allowing that complexity back now if those are some examples of how it would work sort of in larger landscapes let's give a few examples of how dynamic processes might apply to a garden imagine you've got a large tree in your garden that's blown over in the wind and it's now lying right across your lawn and your borders there's no doubt that given the lack of deadwood in urban areas and that's because we tidy it all away generally if you left that tree to rot down naturally you'd be providing an incredible resource for wildlife and actually the next episode is going to be all about deadwood Mm. yeah so if you want to know more about how good it is then check out the next one and you might even end up with a pond in the hollow of the tree's roots that's actually how a lot of ponds form in wild habitats but what if that tree 
Falling right across your lawn and your borders means you can't access your garden anymore. It's simply in the way. Or let's say that you leave wild plants to freely colonise your borders and you end up with a garden full of brambles, nettles and bindweed. And these are plants that tend to enjoy the highly uh, nutritious um, soils in our gardens because we tend to have improved them with compost and fertilisers and things like that. Now there is amazing value for wildlife in these plants. Again, no doubt about that. But they don't tend to play nice with other plants in a garden border. (laughs) This is a bit dominant. Yeah, especially the bindweed. Um, And typically, at least in urban areas, uh, we're not talking about, you know, open countryside gardens here. We also tend not to have herds of grazing animals passing by, keeping these particular plants in check. You know, hedges, fences, things like that tend to get in the way. So the truth is, if we left our gardens to develop their own plant community then they would almost all head towards woodland or something approximating woodland within about 20 years or so. So birds, squirrels, the wind will plant tree seeds and without any major herbivores eating the tops off, the trees will just grow. But this garden forest would be a poor imitation of the real thing. It's fractured by boundaries and roads, there's unnaturally high levels of predation thanks to cats, And it grows on typically highly fertilised soils, like I've just said, which actually restricts the understory plant community. And if you want to know more about that, um, Plant Life have done a really good set of uh, projects on this. So over 100 years or so, those fences will rot away, the excess nutrition will wash out and new plant species will colonise. But what we're talking about there has come a long way from the meaning of a garden as you and I understand it. Yeah. And this doesn't mean that those who want to leave their gardens completely alone shouldn't. If some of us choose to stop gardening altogether, it would add to the overall diversity of our gardens, which of course is fantastic. If you're in central London, then maybe a garden full of nettles and brambles is exactly what your area is missing. But in general, in a garden, we do tend to not allow dynamic processes to go unchecked. But should that change? That's the main question we're asking. And the question is whether we should be encouraging gardeners to allow such processes to determine the function of their space, as in the earlier examples that Ben gave, or whether it's legitimate for gardeners to set their own goals. And here is the opinion part, because we think that setting your own goals is just fine in your garden. For wildlife gardeners, our goal happens to be to support as many species as possible. And of course, the purpose of this podcast is to look at the science and then to work out what's the best way to do that. But the purpose of a garden is also to have a space to drink a cup of tea or play football with the kids. And we believe that gardens are shared for wildlife, yes, but also a place for our own creative expression and relaxation. And let's remember that a mini meadow in your garden is still goal oriented. We choose when to mow it to encourage the species we want. If we plant a mixed hedge, it's also goal oriented, choosing as many species as possible in the mix. When we put up bee hotels, again, goal-oriented, digging upon the same. In fact, without wildlife gardeners setting their own goals on the timescales that we live in... Yeah, and that's the important bit. Exactly. Then a rewilded garden landscape would be far less dynamic and diverse than a managed one. I kind of see this as the difference between a nature reserve and a rewilded landscape. And I see gardens, particularly those of us that are gardening for wildlife, to be more like a nature reserve where we have we are setting our own goals and... Yeah. That's We're right. sort of thinking about the species that we want to encourage and garden for. Yeah, absolutely. Now, obviously, the word rewilding is not used in ecology in the same way as it is in books like Francis Tophill's Rewild Your Garden or um, another book by Jane Moore, which is Planting for Wildlife, A Grower's Guide to Rewilding Your Garden. Uh, and as good as these books surely are, 
we are just simply saying that they're about wildlife gardening, not rewilding. So just to be clear, if you've been doing all the stuff that we talk about in this podcast or all the things that are recommended in those books or elsewhere, and you've been calling that rewilding, then that's absolutely fine. We basically mean the same thing in practice. What we object to is the term. And there are some advantages to using rewilding as a term. The main one really being the fact that it's caught the public imagination. And that's why it's being used for so many different things. And I suppose that's a good thing. But there are downsides to that as well. Often rewilding is seen as a bit of a panacea. It's sort of a cure-all for the degradation of nature. And the truth is that rewilding is just one part of a larger group of methods, all of which are equally vital if we're going to allow nature to recover. And there was a great tweet this week by Professor James Bullock, who's an ecologist at the Centre of Ecology and Hydrology, and we follow him on Twitter. And he, he put out this tweet that said, Rewilding won't save the natural world, but rewilding plus restoration plus sustainable farming, plus increased protected areas, plus pollution control, plus reduced exploitation of natural resources, plus global equity just might. And to this list, we would add wildlife gardening as well. So in the lumping together of everything under the term rewilding, we lose a lot of the nuance of the conversation and we simplify a complex issue to the function of a soundbite. So rather than allowing rewild your garden, to be reduced to the same level as rewild your wardrobe. <laughs> mine's, mine's pretty wild. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, basically, we've decided to stick with wildlife gardening as our preferred term. You, of course, are welcome to say whatever you like, but again, this is just our opinion. Yes, if we removed all our fences to allow animals to roam freely, and if we allowed all the trees to fall and rot in place and allowed scrub to take over our veg patches... And with new built housing estates, we didn't put in any drainage, so the gardens flooded seasonally, then yeah, we agree, there would be great benefits to wildlife. It's just that we don't think that is a reasonable expectation for gardens. So to recap then, we don't think rewilding in the ecological sense can be applied at the scale of a garden, and we actually think there are better terms to be used in discrete situations. And for gardens, for us, wildlife gardening will do the job just fine. Not just because our podcast is called that. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's go back to that garden at Chelsea. Given what we've just said, you might think that we agree fully with Monty Don and Joe Swift that there is no place for a rewilding garden at Chelsea. Well, you might be surprised to know that we don't agree with that. I'm not going to lie. I love putting on a nice dress with the prospect of holding a drink in one hand. <laughs> while... too. <laughs> I've only got two hands, Ben. Come on. <laughs> well, actually, at the prices of Chelsea last year, it was probably one. <laughs> <laughs> a rucksack of strongbow. Yeah. <laughs> While buying plants with the other. But we have a little bit of a strange relationship with flower shows in general. We love the floral marquees, and that's where the real action happens for us, because we get up close and personal with the plants. Yeah, that's the good stuff. But we're often left cold by the show gardens because they seem totally unrelatable to real gardens. We think that Chelsea in particular is less a flower show than a festival for the creative manipulation of landscape, sort of showing off what landscapers can do given enough dosh. And they get a lot of dosh from oh, the Chelsea so gardens. so much money. <laughs> in the year we went, for example, we saw a Himalayan hillside complete with running streams. Yep. In 2017, the Best in Show went to a garden which recreated a Maltese quarry. <laughs> yeah. And the Chelsea Garden of the Decade was won by the Welcome to Yorkshire Garden from 2018. Also won Best in Show that year. It did. And that had built a whole canal complete with Lock and Lockkeeper's house. Yeah, they, they got a lock from a real canal 
and put it in a Chelsea garden. I mean, it looked beautiful yeah, as a landscape. Yeah. But with that in mind, we think it was completely unfair to single out just the rewilding Britain garden as being not a garden. If the garden shows were only allowed to showcase gardens that could reasonably be built in a real garden, then Chelsea would probably completely disintegrate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just have nothing to show. And if a millionaire happened to wander by and get the idea of introducing beavers to their country estate, then it would have a much better impact on the environment than trying to recreate a Maltese quarry. We see then, as Ellie has already said, that Chelsea is really just a festival for the creative manipulation of landscape, which happens to have a plant fair in the middle. And a bar. And a bar. (laughs) And in that vein, we completely support Rewilding Britain and think they were well within their rights to have an exhibit at that particular show. And we think, obviously, winning Best in Show did a huge amount for publicising and raising the profile of Rewilding, which is absolutely amazing. So Don was wrong in part. We think that, as I said, it had every right to be there and to win. But we do agree with him with the fact that because it was the idea of a beaver-created landscape, that it wasn't actually a garden. And the fact that the RHS call these mini-landscapes gardens is actually the root cause of the confusion. Between the two of us, we've tried to come up with alternative terms. But yeah, it's calling it a garden that is confusing. You know, if a Maltese quarry can be a garden then so can a rewilding Britain beaver landscape. But the truth is, neither are actually gardens. They're something in their own class. And that is what Chelsea is for. It's a festival for these sorts of landscapes. Unless you have a hell of a lot of money. When you could actually just buy one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Off the shelf. Oh, Maltese quarry. Yes, please. <laughs> so there we are. Gardens, in our opinion, are just one part of nature's recovery. And within those limits, we personally don't use the term rewilding. When it comes to the advice that we give in this podcast or professionally, we generally don't encourage people to take their hands completely off their gardens. Most gardens need gardeners and a good wildlife gardener can make their plot an incredible space for wildlife. After all of that, I think it's high time that we gave you all a break from our voices. But hopefully you do have lots of food for thought now. Excitingly, we have another wildlife gardening correspondent from around the world. So introducing Ashley Morrill. My name's Ashley and I live in the south of England. I work part-time at Waitrose and full-time caring for my son during the week whilst my wife works. I started gardening during the autumn of last year and I wanted to put into practice the uh, hints and tips that Ben and Ellie mentioned. I started off by uncovering a flower bed that had been covered in gravel when we first moved in. Um, I decided to dig up all the gravel and remove the lining underneath it to reveal soil. So I dug up over the patch as much as possible, removing any debris. I then thought I'd start off by planting something fairly easy. Uh, I heard that daffodils were a really good one to start off with. So I got myself a bag of mixed bulbs. I then also got some snowdrops bulbs. And I read that you should plant them in the autumn. I watched a YouTube video 
on how how best to plant daffodils and then I just waited and the same for the snowdrops the daffodils came out really nicely I kept funny actually I kept looking outside and watching the stems grow out of the ground and I was like come on come on guys come on just start flowering now (laughs) and just kept going out there with a cup of tea or you know and and just observing how much they were growing um but yeah they they did really well and brought a lot of color to the flower beds uh i also kept i just started adding more and more things to this flower bed um what some of the things were primroses also got some english lavender and some french lavender and they've thrived they've literally grown quadruple in size and the bees absolutely love them. I've had uh, honeybees and bumblebees and a few butterflies as well. Um, one of them was a small blue butterfly. I can't actually remember the name of that. I think it's like holly butterfly or something. And I also had a large yellow underwing moth on the flower bed as well. I've also had a compost bin put in the garden and... Every time we feed our son food, he tends to drop quite a lot. So we do things like cucumber sticks, cut up strawberries and that sort of thing. But any that land on the floor, I sweep it up and just pop it in the compost bin. I've also had a bird feeder put in and I've had loads of different species of birds come to the bird feeder and also the uh, water bath, the bird bath that I put in. It was quite exciting, actually, with the starlings. They started off with just a couple of them, one or two. One would sit on a satellite um, dish on somebody's roof. And then when they saw that the coast was clear, they would come down and feed from my bird feeder. And then he started bringing his friends along. Um, And it created like a small murmuration, which was really cool range of insects as well that have visited my garden um, particularly zebra spiders which are one of my favorite types of spiders it's fun watching them hop about um, and seeing their stripes as well on on their body also had wolf spiders as well which scurry around the patio and the wool when i water the plants I'm pretty sure that a hedgehog is has been visiting the garden because I notice every so often a small hedgehog pellet, hedgehog poo. So that's quite exciting. And also it might help get rid of the uh, slugs that try to eat my flowers. But yeah, I'm really enjoying everything with the garden. and It's just really nice going out there, just taking 10 minutes out of my day to walk the plants and just admire all the growth that's happened. Also tried the No Mo May, which was suggested on the podcast. And we noticed so many different wildflowers coming up. I think one of them at the back of my garden was a wood sorrel, which was really uh, pretty to see. I hope everyone enjoys working on their gardens. Uh, Thanks very much. Thank you, Ashley. It just goes to show that you can start small with just one little area of your garden, then go from there. So 
as we've said previously you know everybody can do a bit for wildlife in their gardens and we are also big fans of the zebra spiders automatic 3000 engage So thank you, Ashley. And we need a gardening correspondent for the next episode. Step up, everyone. Yeah. So all you need to do is get onto your phone, record five minutes of yourself talking about your garden, what you're up to for wildlife in it, then send it to us via email to hello at wildlifegardenpod.com. And you could be the next wildlife gardening correspondent. On to our native plant of the month. This month I am very excited because I'm a huge fern of this one. Mm. (laughs) I love it when a joke gets a groan instead of a laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, for the teredophiles out there, aka people who go nuts for ferns, we chose heart's tongue fern or Asplenium scolopendrium. This fern now sits in the Aspleniaceae or spleenwort family, but you might actually, if you look online, still find it under its previous name of Phyllitis scolopendrium. That is until the botanical naming police got hold of it and moved it just to confuse us all. The current genus name, though, Asplenium, comes from the Greek word splen, which means spleen, and that's because the spleenworts used to be used to treat problems with that particular organ. Ah, I didn't know that. No, I've always wondered why they're called spleenworts. But don't try it at home. I, I would always add that. Yeah, that's not genuine medical advice, that one. No. And the species name, which I love this bit, this is great fact, scolopendrium comes from the Greek word for centipede or millipede, which is scolopendra, and that's because the pattern that the spore-producing structures are held in look a little bit like the legs of a myriapod, and that's the group that both centipedes and the millipedes are classified into. That is a good one. It's a good one, isn't it? Scolopendra. So moving from that into what it looks like overall, well, this beauty is evergreen, and it comprises shiny, bright green, leathery strap-shaped fronds. These fronds are generally upright with a bit of an arch and they're arranged in a sort of rosette facing each other. Fun fact time though, it's actually the UK's only fern that doesn't have divided leaves. And by that I mean, you know, the typical ferniness that you see with lots of cutouts in the leaf. What, that particular species? Yeah, it's the only Not one that, genus, that doesn't... that species. No, because the Aspleniace, there's loads of Aspleniums that have lots of different yeah. divided uh, leaves. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that, hey, that is a good fact. Hey, In spring, the plant puts on fresh new growth. And actually, the unfurling fronds are one of my favourite harbingers of warmer weather. I absolutely love them. As the leaves age over the year, that shade of green actually deepens, but they remain over the winter months, hence it being evergreen. Individual fronds can be anywhere from 30 centimetres to a whopping 75 centimetres long. And actually, on a walk with our mate Michelle... Who Hi, listens? Michelle. Hello, Michelle. Down in Plymouth, we saw some monstrously huge ones in a wooded valley. It actually did feel a bit like walking through Jurassic Park because they were completely surrounding us on both sides. It was just so verdant, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was great. Other names for this fern are burnt weed, buttonhole, Christ's hair, which Christ's I imagine. Hair. Well, I imagine you sort of went through a punk phase, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. And horse tongue. But heart's tongue, and that's H A R T 
is the one you're most likely to hear and use. And that's because the leaves reminded someone at some point in the past of the tongue of a male red deer, which used to go by the old name of Hart. And of course, any Harry Potter fans might already know that. Or maybe your local boozer is named after like White Hart. You often see that around and about, don't you? Yeah. It's also an indicator species for ancient woodland. And if you see it when you are out and about, it could mean that where you're wandering is a very special and very old habitat. In terms of its uses, we, and I mean the royal we here, also currently use compounds found within the fronds in medicines for anything from high blood pressure to cough medicines, amongst lots of other things, and also in cosmetics. I'm not sure exactly what. That's bona fide real medical uses, is it? Or not, yeah. not old medical uses? No, no, no. But, now, but they are the compounds. So yeah, we're talking yeah. like chemical chemists out there know what they're doing. Yeah. I'm not rubbing heart's tongue on my face to make my skin nicer and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> so where's it found? The heart's tongue fern is native to temperate regions of the northern hemisphere across Europe to Iran and East Asia and in North America too, from southeast Canada down to Mexico. Though I'll mention here that there are a total three subspecies which generally vary according to where you're looking at it. I won't go into detail about each because the visible differences are actually pretty negligible. In the UK and Ireland, though, you'll find this fern pretty much everywhere from about 0 to 700 metres altitude apart from inland in the very far north of Scotland, and also it won't grow anywhere with very acidic soils. It generally likes moist and sheltered spots, like hedge banks, woods, and often growing out of walls. Though if it is growing in a wall, it'll probably be like a miniature bonsai version, which I've often seen in gardens as well. So now, of course, it's time to get personal with the heart's tongue fern and delve into its sexual antics. As we've never done a fern before, this is all pretty new territory. And for that reason, I'm going to talk very generally about fern reproduction. They don't produce flowers, so how do they propagate themselves? In botany, ferns and mosses are actually lumped together and described as simpler multicellular plants than their more complex flowering cousins. They evolved much, much earlier, about 360 million years, compared with the paltry 130 million years we've had flowering plants for. <laughs> and this is why snappers. I know, the youth of today. <laughs> and this is why we think of dinosaurs when we enter a verdant, mossy and ferny habitat. Ben, you know what I'm going to ask for, don't you? Botanical collection? I reckon so. Botany. Looking at just the ferns, their growth has two distinct phases. There's the actual leafy fern that we see and plant in our gardens, and that is the vegetative stage. And it's this stage which has the ability to produce spores. These spores come from the sori. Sori, which is S-O-R-I, is plural for saurus. And each saurus is made up of, of a collection of sporangia, which is a really great word to say. Sporangia. Sporangia. And it's these sporangia which contain the spores. But for simplicity's sake, we'll just say that the sori are the spore-producing structures on any fern. 
And remember, on the heart's tongue fern, those sauri are held in that sort of centipede's legs pattern down the underside of the fronds. The spores that are produced are dispersed by the wind, and if they land somewhere with favourable conditions for the species, then it's these spores which germinate to produce a second sexual stage. This sexual stage looks like a really tiny leafy structure, and it's within that that the male and female reproductive organs actually develop. Yeah, and this can look like moss, like yeah. really small mosses. So you've probably got them all over your garden if you've got the right conditions. You just have probably never noticed them. And out of that sort of moss comes these male organs which sort of stand up out of them. Yeah, the male organ actually grows up and releases sperm, which is then carried in water to the female organ where it fertilises an egg. Once it's done its sexy job, the small leafy structure withers away and the resulting new fern grows on, hopefully to start the cycle all over again. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. Amazing. Love botany. So what wildlife will benefit from you having Hartston fern in your gardens? Traditionally, when we get onto this from our native plant of the month, we start rattling off lists of pollinators or critters that eat whatever the plant is. As this is a non-flowering plant, that immediately scraps the pollinators off our list. No pollen, no pollinators. Well done, Ben. And I've got to be honest, I actually found absolutely zero information about things that eat it. But that doesn't mean that nothing eats it. And I've, I have seen notches out of leaves for sure. But who knows what actually did them. People obviously have not written about it. Probably slugs. And actually, what this does is lets me highlight another really important aspect to consider for wildlife in your gardens. And that is shelter. Because Hartston fern grows away in shady spots, it's actually a really useful plant for those shady places that actually lots of gardeners consider to be quite tricky to plant into. So we say, because these plants exist, that there's absolutely zero excuse for not cramming more plants in. They're really beautiful, hence us doing it as a native plant of the month. And because they're evergreen and have quite thick leathery leaves, they provide year-round shelter from all weathers for any passing invertebrate. Yeah, we often see loads of spiders in ferns. Yep. Um, shield bugs are always in there hiding away. I you know, naturally get excited by all the moths that I've uncovered hiding away underneath, particularly Hartston fern, actually. Yeah, ladybirds as well. Yeah, it, essentially it could be a lifeline for absolutely anything that is overwintering. Like just, yeah, go and have a look if you've got some in your garden. I bet you will find something under there. Yeah, and it's really important with the ferns generally. They do, some of them do need cutting back. You do have to cut them back to allow the new fresh growth to come up. But wait until the winter's over before you're doing this. Yes, Leave I, all that old growth in there. Yes, and I will mention that in a second as well. So how do you actually get yourself some lush heart's tongue ferny action in your gardens? First of all, do you have the right conditions, as with any plant? Ideally, your soil should be not too acidic and it should also be fairly rich in organic matter because that will allow it to hold on to the moisture that this fern prefers. I will say, though, it won't grow in waterlogged soil. So you actually need that sweet horticultural spot of moist but well-drained. Yeah, and we are at the time of year when leaves are falling all around us. And if you capture all those leaves and turn them into leaf mould... It's the absolutely perfect thing to be incorporating into your soil for planting ferns into. And so free. Yeah. <laughs> and if you have a really sheltered spot, like a north-facing wall or rockery, in absolutely full shade, it will grow away with lower moisture levels. 
It'll tolerate more sunlight, though, if you do have moisture soils, but it never, ever enjoys full sun. If you do try and grow it in full sun, you actually see the leaves go a bit pallid and yellow, and at worst, they actually get scorched. Dappled shade is what it seems to like the best of all. Yes, If your garden is suitable and you fancy a bit of fern propagation, then you'll actually be doing something that we have never done before. Yeah, even at Horticultural College, I don't think either of us did fern propagation, did we? No. Did you? No, and there is probably a reason because this takes potentially a very, very, very long time. But I don't want to put people off, so do bear with me. To do this, as well as finding yourself a spore-producing frond of heart's tongue fern from another plant, you'll need some basic equipment. A paper bag and a piece of white paper a kettle, some pots, compost, and some cling film. I mean, we can stretch to that. Um, We can, yes, but just bear with me. In mid to late summer, pop your frond with its sori facing down onto the white paper. Put that into the paper bag and leave it in a warm place for a few days. You should see the spores eventually drop onto the paper, which is quite cool in itself. You then boil up the kettle and use the water to sterilise the compost and however many pots you think you need, depending on how many spores you've just released. So you're just saying to pour boiling water through the compost. That's exactly it. That just ensures that there are no moulds or anything living in that compost. Once you've done that, put the compost in the pots and let all of that completely cool down. So you're probably leaving that for a good few hours When it's cooled, simply scatter the spores as evenly as you can on the compost surface and then cover with that cling film. Then you wait. (laughs) A word of warning, this can take months or years. Years. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) But if it works, you'll start to see little green specks appear on the surface. Keep those moist as they grow and you do this with a regular fine mist of sterile water and each time you do that, change the cling film to avoid those moulds developing on the surface. How warm do these pots need to be kept? That's a very good question, Ben. Once you've sown those spores, you actually want to keep it in the house. So it needs to be at sort of room temperature okay. for the whole duration. But you don't want it somewhere where you're going to get fluctuating temperatures like on a windowsill or above a radiator. But it does need to be somewhere where you get some filtered light through to the pot So if all of that has gone really well, eventually the whole surface of that compost will actually be covered in green. And at that point, you can stop covering it with cling film. You then take your tweezers. I'm sorry, I didn't mention you need tweezers as well, but add that to the list. And you pick out each individual green leafy structure from that general mix of green. You can actually see the edge of of these structures. You put each one on the surface of some fresh compost, slightly apart from each other. You can still squeeze a few into one pot but you do need a fresh container with fresh compost at this point. And eventually you might see a little fern growing where those green leafy structures once were. Very nice. So I guess that's just like pricking out seedlings. Yeah, exactly you know, From that. one pot into a, another container. That is right, yes. But of course, if all that is not for you, <laughs> then you could also divide a friend or a neighbour's existing plant and you do that in spring. We'll stick a, a link in the show notes as to how to do that exactly and if you're really short of time and also have some spare cash then lucky you but head over to any UK grower and always always ensure they're grown in peat-free media. Ferns in particular will happily grow in peat-free compost and we found loads of peat-free ferny specialists online so you should have no problem there. Actually while we're on the topic again now's another 
good time to plug the great online list of UK peat-free nurseries out there. This is by Nick Wilson. We'll pop a link in the show notes for you. And that list is now 120 nurseries and counting. Yeah, that's good. So please do go ahead and check that out. Yeah, that's more than the last time I checked. Mm -hmm. Great. The only thing to look out for with this particular fern, the heart's tongue fern, is that in mild and damp winters, it might suffer from a rust fungus on the leaves, but that's actually really only likely to be superficial. Just cut away the affected leaves and it might just go away, clear itself up. We actually normally cut back the old previous year's leaves once the new ones emerge in spring anyway, just to get the best out of that really bright green colour. Yeah, and the new ones as they stand up, look incredible they look to me like a bunch of monks all sort of like standing having a chat yeah looking inwards yeah they've all they've they're curled over at the top like they're wearing hoods but they're standing right upright yeah, yeah. They, it's the they they look great at that time of year having a conference yeah on to some different cultivars then there are a couple of great ones to choose from both of which retain that overall long tongue shape of the regular form but they also have some distinct shapes to the edge of each frond. Firstly there is Asplenium scolopendrium, Angustatum and with that one you get a crimped edge to the fronds and that one actually has an AGM, an award of garden merit. Yeah I've seen that one around. And secondly, there's Asplenium scolopendrium cristata, or crested heart's tongue fern, which is harder to describe in words, but it has a sort of much wavier margin and a crested end to each leaf, hence the name. So do go and check those out. Well, thank you very much Ellie. You're most welcome. That was really nice to have a fern. Hopefully we'll do more ferns uh, for our native plant of the month in I, future episodes. I actually taught Ben some stuff with that one didn't I Ben? Yeah I vaguely knew some of that about the life cycle but yeah a lot of it was completely new to me which is great and we've got yeah a few ferns in our regard. My favourite one is the uh, royal fern was oh, Munda regalis. Yeah, yeah that's, that's looking really good. Hopefully that one's going to go up the allotment. In the next episode it's going to be Ellie talking about dead wood. Yeah, there's. I mean, I, it's not. It's never dead. Basically, that's what I've learned so far. It's brilliant, brimming with life. Yeah, it's probably more alive when it's dead than I when agree. it's alive. Yep, totally. Hopefully, we'll have another gardening correspondent from around the world. If one of you sends us a recording, please, 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 please. please. Yep, that's to hello at wildlifegardenpod.com and then you can always contact us on facebook where we are forward slash the wildlife garden podcast and on twitter where we are forward slash the wild gdn and that same name the wild gdn is our handle on youtube so please go ahead over to youtube and subscribe to our channel there you don't have to watch the videos just subscribe (laughs) (laughs) we want it's magic once you get over that magic 1000 subscribers then they start pushing you to more people so that's what we're trying to get to and if you want your name read out on the podcast then please consider donating to our paypal account and we'll be doing that again before christmas so until the next time keep gardening and goodbye bye